listening to Conversations with John Anderson, featuring John Cleese. It's my great honour today to be able to talk with John Cleese. Mr Cleese is, it's, uh, I think, pretty obvious, uh, very well known to many of us, particularly in Australia, as a great humorist, but he's also a very serious observer of the human condition uh, and of uh, our culture and where it's going and has some really interesting takes I'm on the challenges before I'm also a very warm-hearted and kind person. Can you mention that? Yes, he, he's also a very hearty and kind person. And what's more, <laughs> unlike a lot of Australians, it seems to me, he loves Australia. Love it. You enjoy coming here? I've always liked it. I've had a strange connection with it. I think the bottom is, you know, I'm not going to make myself popular when I say this, but Aussies are a very nice bunch. <laughs> They're down to earth. They've got a great sense of humour. They're helpful and friendly and just good to be around. And I think you connect with us on humour. I think your humour is about identical to the British sense of humour, which is big help. We need to talk about that because mm. humour to me seems to be terribly important and maybe we're losing it. But to sort of kick off, mm. uh, this sort of psychology of creativity that I know interests you, mm. and that's the world that you've been in, um, uh, you've written a book on it, as I understand it. You came to prominence during a period of enormous creativity in Britain. Yeah, the 60s. And even today on, on our television programs, people are always going back to the best of the 60s, 70s, yeah. 80s stuff. Uh, faulty towers. It was the same in America too. I mean, what was the 60s like in Australia? Was that a time? When did Bar Harry Bar Barry Humphreys come up? Are we talking? Well, I, I, don't, I, I think Britain eclipsed it. And there was still a bit of a cultural quince, so many of our best still tended to go to Britain. Yes, like the Canadians go to America. Uh, <laughs> half the yeah. really good American comedians are Canadian. Nobody knows that. Are, are there good American comedians? Oh, yes, there's some very good ones. You, you're, you're in, you know, few and far between, perhaps. No, but I thought some of their comedy was great. But it does interest me that your sense of humour is so like ours, and I find these audiences are very easy to play to. They get all the references, and uh, if you get out in the sticks, they, they, they uh, get a little puzzled by irony, but that's true everywhere in the world. Well, I, I think you're right, and I think the, the sort of gallows humour was the high point of it. Oh, in yeah. the most desperate moments, you know, I think Brits and Australians share that capacity to see the lighter side and lighten up when all around them is despair. That's right. Uh, I knew Paddy Ashton. I used to run the um, Liberal Democrat Party in England and he was a, a fine, fine soldier. And he told me that the Marines were always proud of the fact that on one occasion when they were being bombed by their own planes... <laughs> One of them said we shouldn't have joined up if we couldn't take a joke. <laughs> that kind of thing lifts yeah. people's mood. It's yeah. not just that they laugh, but it does something good to us. And I was in Sarajevo about five years ago, and they were showing me how it had been when the Serbs were up in the hills lobbing shells down. And, you know, it, yeah. was, it was a terrible, terrible time for four years. They were in this uh, valley with the Serbs, mm -hmm lobbing shells and shooting people with mm. telescopic sighted rifles when they crossed the street. And what they used to do is after dark, when they could move around, 
they converted an underground car park into a cinema and they used to go there and watch comedy, a lot yeah. of it Monty Python. And they said the extraordinary thing was that when they came out, they felt mm. better, but nothing had changed. It was just as bad as when they went in, but they felt better. So there's something about laughing that moves us to a very healthy part of ourselves. I, I entirely agree, and we'll, we'll, we'll circle back onto that because we're losing that ability to laugh at ourselves. Mm. That, I know that concerns you and it concerns me, uh, the new age of the sort of censoriousness. But before we do, can I ask you, what was it about Britain in the 60s and the 70s? You'd had that terrible Second World War. In many ways, Britain was not doing so terribly well financially. Financially, it no, was but tough. there was a general confidence that things would get better. Hope. Yes. No, but confidence. It was more than we, we knew things were going to get better. And we knew there was a lot of stuff we have to get rid of, stuffy prejudice stuff, all of that. We knew that had to go. But we still knew that we, it was going to get better. And that's what people don't have now. They can't say, yes, it's going to get better, because we don't know if it is going to get better. So I think that, that affects our mood a huge. And the other thing is the rate of change at the moment. If you look at the psychological data, what makes humans anxious is change. And there's a huge rate of change at the moment. And people get anxious about everything. They want some sort of strong man in charge who's going to put things right. It's rubbish, of course, but that's what people deep down want. And that's why there's this resurgence, I think, of dictators all over the world. Yeah, I've often observed on, uh, in talking to other people that we seem to be living in an age of what uh, one commentator's called an emocracy rather than a democracy. We feel everything rather than think it through. Yeah, well, there's a sort of a, an extreme woke position, which is that you should always trust your feelings, uh, which is a good idea if you're in the jungle and there's a tiger looking at you. But otherwise, you want to say, well, um, isn't, hasn't therapy since Freud been about examining your feelings and discover which of your feelings that help you to have a better life and which are actually hindering? Because feelings are just, you, you, you can talk about them and say, this is not a helpful emotion for you. And that's what cognitive behavioral um, psychology is about at the moment. It's about taking the way that people think and getting them to look at it, reframe that thing in a way that's more positive. And yet, the extreme works are saying, we shouldn't do that, we should accept every feeling. Well, supposing I think I'm Hitler. Perhaps it's tied up with a sort of, um, the great virtue today seems to be self-discovery, self-autonomy, mm -hmm. uh, my body is my property, uh, I will do with myself and uh, uh, whatever I like, whenever I like, uh, it's all about me. Uh, and, and there's a loss of community with that. There's a, a lack of awareness that we actually all have to relate to one another. Well, I remember Margaret Thatcher said there's no such thing as society. Never quite understood what she meant by well, that. Well, I think what she meant is there's a whole lot of individuals. And I think if you read the right stuff, like Jonathan Haidt, for example, you begin to see how our relationship with the people around us is what really determines the quality of our life. There's a thing, you know about the blue zones? Mm. The seven blue zones where people live longer and are happier and don't have psychosomatic illness and live much happier lives. Oh, there's one in, in um, California 
And what, when they went there and tried to find out why, why everyone was so happy, and uh, they, they, they tried everything. They sort of looked at the pylons to see if this was something to do with the Electrons electricity the or, you know, and, they, and the water they looked at. And in the end, they discovered that the people in that town had all come from the same place in Italy. They'd all said, it's great here, come. So there was a sort of communal feeling that the Italians have which determine their really good mental and physical health. But it took them a long time to figure out that that was the factor that was making the difference, not individual competitive achievement. Roger Scruton pointed out that it's a bit of a nonsense if you stop and think about it for very long because we come into this world totally dependent on others <laughs> supporting us, making way for us. Yes. That extends quite a way into life, really. Well, to get to my stage where I have a tour manager I refer to as my carer. <laughs> so even at a practical level, this idea that I can just be who I feel I am mm. uh, Carried to absurd extents, really. Well, the Dalai Lama said something that's very simple, and I think it's completely true. He says, if you want to be happy, be unselfish. Mm. When you're doing things for other people, you're going to be happier than if you're doing things for yourself. It's very hard for an American to hear that and to realize that it's actually true. Why do you single out Americans? Because that's the most individualistic of the of the cultures that I'm familiar with. And uh, the British tend to follow slightly the Americans, you know. Because I think if you go to a Spanish town or an Italian village or even a French town or village, I think you'll find more of a sense of community there than you would. But then that sense of community tends to dissipate as you get into bigger cities. And I still say when I come to Australia and Sydney and Melbourne, I find people there friendly and that, that, that attracts me. So the only problem with you guys is you're too far away. <laughs> I heard an American comic talking and there was, a, was an Aussie in the audience and he said to the Aussie, he said, what you people don't realise is that there are planets closer to New York than you are. Well, you know, sometimes I think isolation is not a bad thing. Oh, like well, protect us it depends what you're isolating contagion. yourself from. Although yeah. these days on the internet, you're not safe from any contagion. No, we've lost privacy, that's one thing. And we've also lost privacy in the sense that um, if I say something to you at the end of the interview and somebody finds that on the tape, it'll be on the headline in British newspapers, Cleese says that all Chinese people have one leg, that sort of thing. You know what I mean? Now pick that out and make a big story about it. Happens all the time. Yeah. And there's never there's no privacy, there's no sense of context that what you can say in one context is appropriate, but not in another context. And that's where, again, the extreme woke people don't understand about context, which is why they tend not to have a sense of humor. Because a sense of humor is appreciation of suddenly having one context um, exchange for another. And that's the moment when people laugh. And if you don't understand there are different co contexts, then you, you can't have a sense of humor. And I do say, I don't think that people without a sense of humor should be determining what people with a sense of humor are allowed to enjoy. Just for a moment to revert to the 60s, we touched on those a moment ago, you'd, you'd have to say there's been virtually a revolution. If a revolution is a, a process by which that which is on top is at the bottom, that which is on the bottom is now on the top. If you stop and think about 
since the 60s when it all began in terms of media, which is a world you've been in. You, mm -hmm. you have certain views on the newspapers and the press more generally, which I share. We're doing this partly because people can't engage in the contest of great ideas through mainstream media anymore. Because it's not... It, it, look, it, the great thing about the BBC is we used to have a licence fee. They were not subject to commercial pressures. Then, in about, I think it was 1990s, a guy called John Burt said, if we don't have the same viewing figures that the commercial channels have, people are going to take the license fee away. So they started competing. So they then came under the same commercial pressures the ITV companies had. And from then on, mm. because when, you, when you're just trying to make money as opposed to doing running a great newspaper, then you're going to go for the lowest common denominator because there's a lot of money there. And it's easier journalism. It's not only media that's changed, uh, you know, everything's changed really. Politics has changed. Mm -hmm. you, you have talked about America. You go back to the 60s, Americans revered the office of president even if they hadn't voted for that's that person. Right. And there wasn't this huge gap between the rich and the poor, which I think is just awful. That didn't start till Reagan, you see. Well, all Reagan's ideas led to this uh, extraordinary explosion of, of wealth in the very, very uh, rich people, who, of course, because of their money, are very, very powerful in terms of pushing forward with ideas. What, what would you say to the flip side, if I might, for a moment, um, that both Reagan and Thatcher did undergird their economies. They were stronger as a result of the reforms they put in place, which did mean, particularly in Britain's case, they were able to recover. What was a pretty dangerous well, economic position? I think position? the problem of, so often, John, is well, when somebody comes in to change something, they only need to change it somewhere near the middle, but push it back to the middle. This is the pendulum. And they problem. always go on the other side. So Margaret Thatcher does a lot of very useful stuff, reducing the power of the unions, but then she privatizes railways and water. Well, what's the point, you know? And the results in England now are just appalling because these contracts tended to be handed to conservative supporters who uh, made huge salaries and paid out enormous amounts of money to the shareholders. And now we have sewage in the water in England to a, to a, to a state that is absolutely distressing. Well, that raises another point. I'm jumping all over the place a bit here. I'm sorry about that. I don't mind. But this really interests me. Um, there was a time when those people of wealth and influence would have been thought, particularly in Britain, to have had quite a deep sense of noblesse oblige. Yes. It wasn't just about them. They looked after others. They had they responsibility. Did. It was very patriarchal, but in some places it was okay because it depends on the people. If you have decent people running a system, it's not so important what the system is because they're decent people. You agree? I agree? Yes, I do. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with that very strongly. In many years in government, uh, whenever some authority went wrong or a safety body or whatever made a mistake, There'd be calls, oh, it's the wrong model, reconstruct the architecture. And I learned over time that actually it was more about the people operating. Getting the, the right. We get decent people in who are not too selfish, not too driven for the need to power. I mean, you've been at the top. What I don't get is a lot of people want power so they actually make the place better. But recently, particularly in England and America, people want power because they can line their own pockets better. True. 
it's very hard to argue with the proposition. I think it is true. Uh, and I think people in the streets perceive it to be true. And I think it's driving cynicism and a breakdown in trust. Yeah. So I'm, I'm wanting to sort of say, what went wrong in Britain? Because I always thought that, all right, the class system's not something that sits well with Australians, but there was a sense of obligation to others. Yes. From the top down, but yes. not only from the top down, the yes. strength of the middle class. Love your neighbour, do other yeah. them as you would do. I guess you'd say the strong influence uh, of Christian belief in the UK. Yes, now, which you, you is... To the yeah, 60s, you're absolutely right. Everything started to change. That yeah. sense of... It's all about me, radical individualism, but individualism shouldn't be a selfish doctrine. See, if I say I matter, then surely the corollary is you, you matter equally. Therefore, I've got to treat you with as much respect as I would like you to treat me. Yes, yes. Well, that's uh, gone. Treat thy neighbour as thyself. I mean, we, we, we need to understand how much a, a community is valuable to us mm. in terms of the quality of our life. And if we think it's all about getting this huge pile of money, and then you say, well, we're creating jobs. Yes, we're creating a large number of badly paid jobs and you're taking all the profits, you know. I don't like that kind of thinking. I think it was a move in the right direction with Thatcher and Reagan and then they went much too far. And in one sense, to be fair to them, they're acolytes, I suppose. This is what often happens, isn't it? You know, the disciples take some of the teachings of the master to extremes oh, and use them to selfish advantage. You get me onto religion, which is what I, you know, this is what I am fascinated by. When I started writing Life of Brian, uh, Graham Chapman and I started reading a lot. And what I realized was that almost everybody who's founded a religion was in some way or another a mystic, you know. But what happens is as those churches, as the administration of the religion grows, first of all, a lot of people coming into it start coming into it because it's quite a nice life. <laughs> you know, got a good dental scheme. You know? <laughs> and once you get people coming in for that reason, then you find the people rising to the top in the organization are the power seekers. And the one thing that Buddha and Christ are not talking about is power. You know, Christ is taken up by the devil, isn't he? And, and the devil says, look at all this, this can be all yours. And Christ says, no, thank you. The moment power comes into it, power and money, because they're intertwined, something is beginning to poison the system. Interesting set of observations in there, because you see, I mean, Christ lived at a time when the Jewish people were looking for a political savior. Oh, yeah. And he eschewed political power. Yeah. It became one. You know, the model is one of a servant king. He actually serves by dying, by laying down his life for others. And I've found myself fascinated by the global response to the death of Queen Elizabeth II. I should say to her that I thought she was an incredible person who set a very high standard. But we're told that four billion people yeah. watched that funeral. Well, I think she was seen as a, as a sign of continuity, which is people like because they're trying to change. And she was there for so long, she represented continuity and duty, because she was extraordinarily dutifully, probably had, in many ways, an awful life, you yeah. know? I yes. mean, I don't think anybody wants to be a royal, do they? Yeah. Well, I wouldn't want to be. But, but here's the point, isn't it? She was a sort of servant leader. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and there's this disconnect, isn't there? Great wealth doesn't mean you can't be a person of the people. No. And vice versa. I think it's great wealth is inherited 
is probably better than great wealth of it, but funny enough, it's been acquired. Because what fascinates me about the rich people is they never have enough. I had a friend, I mentioned it at lunch, in, in a, a rich friend in Santa Barbara, and I said, why are the rich people so greedy? And he said, you got it wrong. They're rich because they're greedy. Yeah. And there's very little idea in a lot of um, economists' mind of enough, that you can have enough. And if you can't have enough, then you're going to suck it up. And every decent religion that's ever been says that greed is a sin, except for economists, of course. And the psychology of economists is very interesting because they go into economics because they're more money-minded than the rest of us. And they leave it even more money-minded because that's what economics, the study of economics does. And for example, they give less money to charities and they're more inclined to uh, turn a blind eye to shady dealings. We should not be taking our morals from economists. <laughs> Amen. Um, they can serve a useful purpose because good economics will produce good outcomes for people. That's true, but then uh, uh, that may suggest that only economic principles are going to help people. Well, I... There are many other psychological things that are much more happy. I mean, I've had several people tell me in the last 12 months, and it struck me, one was talking about South America, and uh, one was, was talking about the Solomon Islands, and they were saying, these are the poorest people I've ever seen, and they're also the happiest. No. Now, how do you explain that to an economist? Well, I, it's, it's my actual view, after a long time of about thinking these things, that good economics follows uh, a, a sound society with strong values. It, uh, yes. Okay. So it's the other way around. But, but it's the values that are the ones that dictate what the economic policy should be, I think. Yes. And so the, the classic sort of, at its best, waspish idea of the American work ethic, Protestant work ethic or whatever, was work hard, save hard, create a better world for your children yeah. and those that followed. And that question of hope, I think, I once heard uh, Tim Costello, very well-known Australian, his brother was the treasurer of Australia for a long time uh, when we were in government and, and, and we were economic reformers, but he made the point that in days gone by, the country was settled by people who had hope. Yeah to the point where they would yes. risk everything yeah. in sailing boats to come out to Australia. They'd go out into a land of heat and yeah. snow and floods and fire and snakes and spiders yeah. and all sorts of other problems in the hope that they could build a future for their children. Well, you asked me earlier about the 60s and I said, I think in those days people had hope. We thought that things were going to get better. Or we put it more positively, we're going to help make things better. But he went on to say, and this is germane to this, he said, and then our parents, you know, maintained enough hope to get through the Great Depression, yeah. World War II, the Cold War, but tonight we hope for a good time for ourselves at the party. And that long-term hope that you talked about, that hope that you could improve things that drove, I think you're saying, a sense of humour, which is part of a healthier life balance and it's attitude. It's part of relaxation. You see, if people are really relaxed, they're going to be laughing. Yeah. They, the, two goes the two go hand in hand. Mm. That's why if you want to create a creative atmosphere, and I know a little bit about this, it needs yeah. to be relaxed and it needs to be humorous. Yeah. 
because the, the effect of humor is to destroy hierarchy. If you're with people and you're all laughing and having a good time, there's no sense of one person being more powerful than another. I've never thought of it. It's a great leveler. It's a great leveler. It's, it's anti-hierarchy. Mm. And that's why um, very pompous people don't like humor because their assumption of self-importance can't survive in a humorous attitude. Are we uh, becoming self-important people because we're losing ourselves? A lot of people are becoming self-important. I think the danger is old people. Well, you know, old people get to the point where suddenly they think they know it all and they're very impressed with themselves <laughs> and they want everyone else to be sufficiently impressed. Whereas the best thing to do is to go... <laughs> and then nobody thinks you're trying to be particularly <laughs> impressive. But then you can have fun and, 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 and chat to people and have humor and have creativity. And that goes with solemnity, which is what the really important people love. You see, this is why I'm a comedian. My wife was watching the coronation. <laughs> and she said, oh, come on in and watch a little bit. And I came in and I sat on the bed next to her. She's got all the cats around her at the television set. And I took one look at it, and Charles was walking into Westminster Cathedral. I couldn't stop laughing. I literally, spontaneous, I could not stop laughing. It was Monty Python in these ridiculous costumes, <laughs> and everybody taking it so seriously. I thought it was wonderfully funny. But you see, if you had a little bit of humor in that atmosphere, everything would collapse because it's all about hierarchy and importance and precedence and all that. So in a sense, you're saying that to make the best of the times when you've got to be solemn and make big policy decisions. No, you must never be solemn. You must be serious. Serious, right. And if you're serious, you can have a hum humor around. That's what if I'm you're driving. solemn, you can't. Yeah. Yeah. So you're actually saying the two go together. The ability to make good decisions and be serious when you need to be is aided and abetted and fueled along if you can laugh. Oh, yeah. But we because don't laugh. When, yes, because when you laugh, we're, we're losing people both. are more relaxed and they're more creative and you need yeah. creativity for making decisions. It all goes together. Do you see what I mean? It's all the same package. Go back to the 1960s again. I just want to tease this out. Yeah. Uh, you know, as the ancients had it, a life worth living must be one that involves serious reflection. Yeah. And I've been with you long enough to know that you reflect very seriously. You've thought about a lot of things. What but do you not see? Solemnly. <laughs> not solemnly. Well, I think you have. But what do you see as the linkage, standing back and being objective, between uh, the, um, this move into censoriousness, this lack of humour, this lack of hope that we've talked about, and the abandonment, let's be frank about this, of you talked about the, the, the great faiths of the world, but ours was Christian. Mm. We've largely abandoned it. I mean, Britain is a ridiculously secular country now, and uh, yeah. it's all too easy to set up for a good well, laugh. Well, I think the answer is that Christianity is too difficult. I mean, what Christianity asks of its um, followers is enormously difficult, and I think most people can't take it quite seriously. G.K. Chesterton said, it's not that Christianity has failed, it's just that it's never been tried. 
And I think that's the problem about it. But the other problem is that if you're around Jesus or the disciples, you're getting something from them which is transforming you. If 600 years later, uh, you're getting the power seekers in the church running it like a bureaucracy, you're not getting anything like that at all. G.K. Chesterton also observed, though, of course, that when we stop believing in God, we start believing in anything. Yeah. When we stop believing in God, it's not that we don't believe in anything, it's that we believe... Uh, and that we believe in anything, that we're easily swayed, yeah. that lots of things flow under the vacuum. Well, I think it depends what you mean by God, you see. If somebody says, do you believe in God? I'd say, well, what do you mean? How would I know if there was a God? Am I really going to say to someone, could you please suspend the laws of the universe in my favor just for a few minutes? I mean, what does it mean? But I think there's something out there. I do believe there's something out there. I like the Alcoholics Anonymous people who call it a higher power. I do think that that's there, and I think it's possible to get in a state, uh, possibly through meditation or possibly fishing, where you actually contact something which makes you feel better as a person. I mean, don't just feel better, but it, it helps to make you at least temporarily a better person. I suppose where, to some extent where I'm coming from is to say that what it seems to me that the West's faith system brought was an understanding of the worth and dignity of each individual, regardless yes. of their circumstances yeah. or the colour of their skin or whatever. Yes. And that with the abandonment of faith, we seem to lack any logic for saying we ought to recognise one another's humanity. So we've got identity politics, for want of a better that's word, very good. where I we atomise and I divide. think once you lose a religious underpinning, then you've got to go to something else. And I have a nasty feeling that people go to money do you see what I mean? That the money becomes the meaning of life. And that's such a joke when you consider, I mean, Christ did not say blessed are the rich. No, no. Right? Blessed are the poor. Is what the he poor, said. of course. And the poor in spirit, meaning the humble. Yes. When did we decide that pride was a greater virtue than humility? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Don't ask the evangelicals. <laughs> Because these are people who take, take a wonderful, beautiful teaching and their literal mindedness makes it ridiculous. I mean, there's a movement in America called something like Prosperity Christianity, which is about how if you're really holy and pray a lot, you'll get lots of money. No, not really what Christ taught. <laughs> you take as an example, though, uh, somebody whose faith was surely admirable in your own country, William Wilberforce. He started out with a fortune in today's money. Yeah. But he came to identify uh, with people of very different circumstances, the slaves, and fought for his entire life well, to free them. He was and a died a pauper. He died hmm? a pauper. He gave up everything. Did he? Yes, he did. Well, he was a Quaker, wasn't he? No, no, he wasn't. He wasn't a Quaker? No. Well, most of the Quakers were involved in the were. abolition of slavery. They kicked it off. Well, the worst wasn't. No, he wasn't. No, no, he... Uh, uh, he became uh, profoundly converted after wandering around Europe with a man called Isaac Milner, who was apparently the most brilliant mathematician of his day at Oxford. And they debated endlessly, and Wilberforce came out convinced that Christianity was true. And then he became convinced that a person's skin was irrelevant. And he teamed up, amongst other things, yeah. with Josiah Wedgwood. And they struck a bas relief. You can still find examples. Really? Yeah. Wedgwood? Wedgwood. Josiah Wedgwood. And the, the bass release is of, a, of a, a slave in chains looking up imploringly. It's beautifully done. The, the work is brilliant, the features and what have you. And underneath, am I not a man and a brother? First modern political uh, uh -huh. sort of slogan. 
And Wilberforce was adopting that and saying, the colour of skin is irrelevant. These are human beings. We shouldn't be trading one. No, of course. Anyway, I, um, we often decry our own history. But there was something... Well, noble. yes, people are... A bit, uh, one of the great problems is this binary thinking that th all things have to be yep. either good yep. or bad. People have to be either good or bad yep. instead of a mixture. Yep. And everything's arriving, it's not binary, everything's on a spectrum. Yes. You know, extreme up one end, mm. least extreme up the other, but it's, it's not black and white. And the um, moment you think in terms of black and white, you're yeah. immediately sunk because so, you've lost contact with reality. So the, the, you know, the dividing line between good and bad isn't here between you and me. It's somewhere across here, and you know, well, I mean, you're mother, mostly good, I think. <laughs> mother <laughs> Teresa once said that she went into her work because she realised she had a Hitler inside her. You have to understand. What an interesting comment. Yeah, you have to understand that you've got all the bad things in you as right. well as the good things. The problem with the Puritans is they always think they're more pure than they are. And this leads to that mechanism of Carl Jung called denial and projection. That if you start denying you have certain negative emotions, then they don't go away. Where they go is over there in other people, and then you can attack the other people yeah. for the nasty emotions that you put in them. So that's why you can finish up, for example, when the Puritans were pretty strong in England in the 17th century, you find that the witch hunting goes up because all the men are saying, well, if I had sexual feelings, they can't be mine because I'm very pure. So they've been putting me by a woman. We better get rid of her. But we're reinventing that now. We're yeah. living in a yes. new age of absolutism Absolutely. and cancelling. Yes. And you're not, the idea, as somebody says, that a university should be a safe place. And you want to say, all right, let's take away everyone's passports because you know what happens? If you travel, your mind broadens. Well, we don't want that. <laughs> Passport, please. We want you to just have one set of values and be completely aware of any other set. Because then you'll be uh, what's called uh, very narrow-minded. Tell me about the laws, because I know you've spoken out about them. And, and you're not the only English comedian of great note that we've enjoyed. As I said earlier, we keep... I thought I was the only great comedian. Well, you're the greatest. <laughs> What else can I say? To Flatterer. <laughs> yeah, but well, I saw a survey the other day that says Faulty Towers is the most, remains the most popular comedy series. It's in, in the top four or five, yeah. Yeah, I think you're being modest. I saw it was number one. But I don't think you can grade things like that. It's almost binary thinking again. There are certain things that are exceptionally good. That's why I think the awards are slightly silly. I wish each year they'd say there's five films of quite extraordinary quality. Here's five yeah. awards for the five for the five films. Do you see what I mean? So I, do. I do. One I slightly better yeah. than the other. And you've got to allow for people's different tastes. That's quite legitimate of course, as well. Of course. Um, but, but the point I was going to make is that you and many others, uh, Rowan Atkinson, for example, but uh, I think Constantine Kisten and I have heard the same thing, say that it's very hard to be funny in Britain today because people take offence and the law allows the most extraordinary Yes, I don't know so much about the law. I mean, the whole thing's a mess. Uh, I think that the greatest problem has been this business about offending. I remember... You know, Monty Python used to offend people, but the, the director general at that time, his name was Carlton Green, he was the brother of Graham Green, the novelist. He was director general, and he said there are some people one would wish to offend. Well, it's a wonderful 
attitude. Just because I'm def offended by something, it doesn't mean that I'm some poor, helpless victim who's been beaten to a pulp by somebody's joke. What it, what it, what it means is that I'm chosen to be a victim. That all those great qualities that the Stoics tried to inculcate a past, we're gone. Stoicism and picking up with difficulties without complaining, that's gone. Now we've all got to be victims. And it's very, very easy to be a victim, you know? Well, I agree. In fact, I think there should be a television show where people compete against each other to see who has been victimized the most. <laughs> well, <laughs> um, the, uh, now, now you've cost me my train of thought. Um, Sorry, well, it doesn't matter. <laughs> we can always edit this bit. <laughs> um, it does seem to me, though, that uh, this inability now to laugh at ourselves because, and to take offence flies in the face of something that, if I'm really honest, there have been times when I've had to learn something painful about myself mm. and I could have reacted two ways. I could have said, oh, I'm a victim, you've hurt me, go away, I'll, 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 I'll shut you down, I'll cancel you, I'll try and do whatever. Mm. Or, gosh, that hurt, but there's an element of truth in it. Well, that's, that's what a Christian, a real Christian would do. See, what he, instead of immediately batting the criticism away, he would think, is that true? Is that true of me? How, how true is it? Yeah. Not is it true, black or white? true or untrue, but uh, you know, to what extent is there truth yeah. in that? And people find that very, very difficult to do. They don't yeah. really want to be criticized. And what the mistake that the woke people say is that all humor is critical, not puns. Yeah. They're not critical, but any kind of faulty towers humor, any kind of film or stage humor, because you don't laugh at perfect people. If someone is kind and wise and gentle, there's nothing funny about them. It's when they fall below that and become greedy or lustful or spiteful, that's when they become funny. So all humor is critical, but the question is, how is the criticism conveyed? If we tease friends, it's done with affection. You could just point something out to a friend by teasing him about it, but if it's done that's with affection, yes. Or did in my day. <laughs> That's right. Probably in your Whenever day. with your family or your best friends, there's a lot of affectionate teasing. Yeah. <clears throat> affectionate teasing is actually a bonding mechanism because it's saying to people, particularly like the English, who can't say anything really loving or affectionate to people without getting embarrassed. So in England, we insult someone because we're basically saying, I could never say this to someone I didn't love because it would be so rude, but I can say it to you because I love you. It's a bonding mechanism. Do you see what I mean? Oh, well, that's Australian as well. Yeah. It's exactly yes, the same. That's right. Well, the, um, the same sense of humor, which is great. We and, and, and sometimes, you know, you you watch Australians and think they've got to have a couple of beers at the bar before they even get to that point. Yeah. But it still happens. Well, then people begin to loosen up and as they relax, they get more humorous and they get more creative and everything, everything gets better. Mm. Uh, what I wanted to say was, because uh, you, uh, there are people who are unkind or who become unkind under certain circumstances and they do nasty teasing, that's awful. We don't do that. Yeah. It's not supposed to be funny. It certainly yeah. isn't affectionate. It's actually trying to hurt people's feelings, which is a, 
a dreadful thing to do. So that kind of teasing, the mean teasing, the non-humorous, non-affectionate, that's out. But the, the woke people don't understand the difference between the two because it requires hmm. understanding of differing contexts and they can't do that. And so what happens then is they run for the law book. They tie yes. up the laws. That's right. So then we tie ourselves up in Not red, a red lot tape. of humour in the law. No. no. Well, it can end up restricting mm -hmm. humour, which is, as you've just really very effectively painted, is a very important part of free speech. Huge important part. It shines lights on things. And it lifts something in What's us, but moves us to a better mm. part of ourselves mm. for a few minutes or half an hour, maybe an afternoon. I mean, I'm very touched with how many people have told me that when they have a bad day at the office, they come back and the first thing they do, make a cup of tea or coffee and watch an episode of 40,000. Half an hour later, mm. oh, their life's all right again. So <laughs> I'm also a therapist. <laughs> I hadn't quite thought of you in that way, but... <laughs> um, but you, you, know, you raise a really important and interesting point there, I think. And that is that we have a responsibility to think carefully about how we use and how we express humour. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the need sometimes to say to somebody, listen, yeah. listen, Jock, you need to shape up a bit here. Yeah. Those sorts of things. Because the Americans tell me, uh, who, uh, Americans who understand this stuff, you can actually trace the decline in support on American university campuses for free speech it sort of kind of tracked social media and smartphones and then it flipped and American students now on balance will not say oh, we support free speech, we support appropriate speech. Well, who determines what's appropriate? Exactly. And we've seen how clumsy the law gets. But I would posit that that is one of the downsides of social media. People used it to insult others and so oh, many of those yeah. students have been so hurt by what the bullying online Yes. But they've said, this has got to stop, find me some laws That's to present. That's horrible. Because but people what, haven't behaved responsibly in the first place. But John, why don't they make these cruel comments um, traceable? Yeah. Most of the reason that yes. people say these horrible things is nobody knows who they are. And the they anonymity this, of a keyboard warrior. It's poison out there. Mm. Supposing they have their name attached to it. Mm. Mm. I don't understand, but do you know what I think the answer is? I think it would cut into the profits too much. Yeah, well, it's hard not to be cynical, isn't it? It's is very hard to be. Mm. Look, but if you're being cynical about people who are motivated only by money, that's not being cynical. Let's be realistic. Mm. Just on this question of social media, yeah, you, you've watched it develop. You've watched it. Um, I was very late coming to it. I used to have a. I tell you how I got involved in it. Uh, Stephen Fry, yeah. good friend, and he said, John, get a following on Twitter, and then if you've done a show or written a book and you want people to know it's out there, you can tell them on Twitter without doing an interview with a British newspaper who will insist on a sort of whole life uh, interview and will then explain to the British public what a deeply unsatisfactory person you are, mentioning three paragraphs in the end that you've got a book coming out. So that's why I started to do it, that if I have a show or something, then I found I wanted to say things or point certain things out to people. So I'm quite involved in what I still call Twitter because that's what it is in my mind. And it helps sometimes because if somebody like uh, Piers Morgan says, what did he say? He said, when are you going to be funny again, please? It's been a long time. 
and I was able to reply, when you're going to be talented, it's been a lifetime. <laughs> now, once you do that, <laughs> don't come at you again quite so. That's uh, <laughs> word enthusiastically. Yeah, they, those clips were sort of one-liners. The old story about But it's a way of protecting yourself, because up to that time, the British press were quite unscrupulous about the nasty things they'd say. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So much of the debate now has moved online. Yes. And quite a few people have said to me in recent times, you can't hope to win an idea in the public arena no. now through the mainstream media. You've got to go online. That's where the debates are happening. But, there's but a the debates are very low quality by and large, aren't they? I mean, the best discussions now are podcasts. And they're very successful, the podcasts, because people are hungry for slightly longer discussions and balancing points of view a bit more instead of insulting the other side. I'll, I'll let you know when we've had 10 people listen. <laughs> what, do you, what do you normally get on this? You can never pick it. Never uh, what? Uh, you can never quite tell. Because they can go on and on watching it. They can. Yeah. So, for example, I did one uh, with Professor John Lennox on artificial intelligence. It ran oh. to about 90 or 100,000. And 12 months later, AI became a big issue and suddenly it ran yes, yes, way exactly. over the minute. Because it's way not topical. Yeah. You see, the most mm. important thing about these conversations are about general ideas, not just mm. something that's happening at yeah. the moment. But there is a real appetite yeah. for that sort of thinking. Uh, yeah. And, which is not being satisfied by the media. No, it's not. And I've learned never to run an agenda, never to interrupt, because if I do, my, my subscribers will say, John, that's not your model. We come onto your channel because we want to hear what your guests have got to say, and we will work out for this ourselves. This is slightly we agree spooky or not. because I've just done a television series in America for GB News, which I call KGB News, <laughs> and it's exactly based on that principle. And is it working? Uh, yeah, I don't know because it hasn't been transmitted yet. No, but the, but the GB people news listening. That model, yeah. Oh yes, it's now becoming yeah. uh, the, the the viewing figures are now becoming better than Sky, and better than the BBC for eight hours a day or something. I don't understand the technique, but it's it's had a big spurt about six weeks ago. Hmm. There's a it's doing the rounds in Australia at the moment, probably because you're here. But there's a classic scene. Uh, in the life of Brian, yeah. and you'll know you know where this is going already. I bet there's a debate on whether a man can be a woman and have babies. Oh yes, do you remember that? Yes, quite extraordinary. Written in 1977. Yeah, yeah. And that's the point, isn't it? Yeah. And he finishes the skit by saying the man in question is struggling with reality. Yeah, um, that's right. That uh, wouldn't cut it today. No, but it would with some people. You see, the whole point is that my experience is this. I like doing stage shows. The reason is, if people are sitting in the audience, they've paid money for a ticket, and they won't do that if they don't like me. They don't say, I can't stand him, let's get six, six tickets. So they're going to like my style of humor, so they're not going to be offended by my style of humor. Now, if I was doing that stuff on television, be a lot of people in the audience who I think would misunderstand the nature of my humor and would go after me as a result. And that's a bit boring to have to deal with if you don't really think there's anything in it. I've thought a lot about the hurting people's feelings. And there are one or two jokes in the past I've made that I would not make now. 
But by and large, I think, provided it's fundamentally affectionate, it doesn't matter if you are rude, critical, or tease people. That's a really brilliant insight. As long as it's fundamentally affectionate. Fundamentally, another way of putting it, if yeah. people know that you're not actually being disrespectful. That's right. That's an, if you're respecting well, that's your right. human being. It's burn. very hard making yeah. jokes about Trump for that reason, because it's very hard for me to feel affectionate. Um, you highlight another problem, of course, there, though, and that is, so you can play to the audience who want to hear what you've got to say. Yeah. Whereas, actually, a lot of the people who need to hear what you've got to say, who need to have their ideas put on the spotlight, bit of sunlight on it, they don't have to. They can self-censor or it's not on television. This is a problem in the age of social media. We all... Oh, yes. We follow our own lines of interest. So when people say to me, why are you on GB News as a right wing-leaning channel, I said, well, that's good because people will hear something they're not used to hearing. Well, that's, that's good on that channel. Yeah. And on social media, though, people will follow. And, and the, the, you know, of course, the, 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 the tech giants, they all set it up. So if you're interested in talking to John Cleese, I'll have a whole lot of people who, yeah. who think like you do or agree with you yeah. rather than contesting your well, ideas. Well, that's, that's the problem, isn't it's it? It's a big because, problem. Well, it's... I, I don't know what you do about it, except you say to young people, you must try and broaden your mind and not narrow it. And you don't broaden it by hanging out with all the people who agree with you and reading all the stuff, because mm. you'll never learn. Learning is about discovering, oh, I'm not right on that. Reading Jonathan Haidt affected my views on a lot of this stuff, because I saw how certain communal values were more important than I used to think. So you take that on board and all the time, every day I read something of what I'm interested in is not something that confirms my views, but something that challenges them. And that makes me think. And mm. I said, oh yeah, I hadn't thought of that angle. So you're constantly learning and the people who are any good in their jobs are the ones who are constantly learning mm. and the ones who think, I am now good enough, I know it all. Yeah. I sometimes think uh, that some of those great comedies, which I used to really enjoy, may have just possibly not all been upside in terms of their long-term impact. I'll illustrate. I loved um, uh, Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister. Yes. And Sometimes I used to quip, probably wasn't original, uh, that uh, to people that you, know, you think it's a comedy, but I know it's a documentary. Yes. And, and they were fantastic, incredibly clever. Yeah. But I wonder... Can't have been that funny, because it was Margaret Thatcher's favourite programme. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> but my point is, I wonder whether in some way sending up, if you like, making comedy out of... Things that have a serious side as well, you know, the difficulties of governing. Yes, but serious can be humorous, don't forget. That's true. But my question more generally is for you to think about and perhaps respond to, do you think perhaps we've actually undermined confidence in our own Yeah, Roger Scruton said something like this, that uh, it's very good if you have something that's very established and pretty solid, it's very good to chip it away at it. But if you don't have much left after it's all been chipped away, maybe you should be building things up. But I still think that the cynicism about politics is because the people in British politics at the moment are people you ought to be cynical about. If they were more public-spirited and had gone on to make the world a better place, 
instead of um, Nadine Doris or whatever her name is, somebody like that, just using a position as MP to make money. Of course you have to be cynical about that. But that's why when I was in Singapore, I was so impressed by the quality of everything and the organization and the beauty of the town and all the greenery everywhere. There's greenery, there's trees and the skyscrapers, you know, that's extraordinary. And that's because those guys in charge are very, very good because they're well paid. And they've got good people in there who don't need bribes. And that's intelligent, whereas nobody wants to be an MP in England. It's a terrible job, so you're going to make the job more important and pay it better, and then you'll get better people. Because at the moment, the quality of people going into politics is just dreadful. It's an interesting point, isn't it, that um, uh, I was saying to you over lunch, I recently talking to six or seven Australian people, I didn't know them well, but they were plainly very good and impressive people. They're very worried about government, very worried about why doesn't the government understand this, why doesn't the government do that. And I thought I agreed with them, but I just said, can I just ask you, have any of you encouraged the best of your sons and daughters to give up a few years of their lives to go and serve in the public sector? And they all just laughed and said, we take the point. No, we haven't, yeah, we wouldn't. Yeah. But we all want to be entrepreneurs, don't we? And the trouble with entrepreneurs is that they don't want to do one thing really well. They want to do 179 things reasonably well. And my admiration is always to people who do one thing really well. They have one superb hotel, one superb restaurant, and all the people who immediately want to do franchises. That's a different frame of mind. Mm, uh, yeah. Well, nonetheless, I take your point. It's a big issue for us all in the democracies. How do we attract the people we need? Uh, if I had a dollar for every time an Australian said to me, scratching their head, how come the Americans, with 300 million people, are facing another choice between two very old men? <laughs> you know, for Don't you country? start criticising old men. I'm quite... <laughs> well, I am one. But they're a little bit older You're than 64. <laughs> <laughs> Will you still love you me? You wait. Yeah. <laughs> Will you still you feed a, me? Have a carer. You'll <laughs> <laughs> become much more sympathetic to us. The important thing is that Biden has a good carer because he gets a lot of other things very, very right. <laughs> and up against him, you've got a psychopathic, delusional, awful man, much loved by the evangelists. Explain that. So, is it the carers or is it the old man who gets it right? What? Is it the carers or the old <laughs> man who gets it right? Oh, uh, the carers. <laughs> I mean, all he has to do is to, is to have good carers, to have good people like Blinken in, you know, in the most important offices of the state. If you get the good people in there, then the president doesn't have to do too much. Sounds yeah. like, sounds like, I wish it had been like that in my day. I found that there were all sorts of things I was expected to do. <laughs> You've recently had some really interesting discussions with psychiatrist and literary scholar Ian McGilchrist. Oh, yeah. Sounds like a really interesting fellow. And uh, he's been uh, talking, or you've been talking with him, the relationship between the right and left hemispheres of the brain. Yeah. I've heard people talking about well, it's, uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to get this wrong because it's very subtle, but Ian basically starts from the point of view that the two hemispheres of our brain are not symmetrical. Most people assume that they are. They're not. The one seems to have sort of twisted one way and in the other, and there's a you know, 
different shape and all this kind of thing. And he says that the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere have, as it were, different ways of living, feeling, thinking, whatever you want to do. The left hemisphere is very good at calculation. It's very good at exploiting things. It's very good at analyzing things. The right hemisphere is much better on seeing what the context is and meaning. And what's so interesting is that if your left hemisphere is damaged, you know, by disease or some awful mm. accident, then you can continue to function. But if your right hemisphere is damaged, you can't, you can't do it anymore. So it's the right hemisphere that provides the context and the meaning. The left hemisphere should be its servant. You know, the right hemisphere should sort of say, this is what we want to achieve. And then the left hemisphere says, fine, this is how we achieve it. But the right hemisphere does not try to be dominant, and the left hemisphere always does, which is why critics who can't write, direct, or perform, are put in judgment over people who can, which is kind of hilarious. You and see what I mean? Yeah, well, concerning as well as hilarious. Yeah, but it's, it's ludicrous that people who can't do something should be judging people who can. And we, we're so used to it, it doesn't strike us as being odd. But it's a very good example of how the left hemisphere has to dominate. That's why those, uh, um, what well, the postmodernist French intellectuals, you know, that they they mess it up because they don't understand the basic principle, and also the principle that if you are saying that a writer doesn't really produce the work, it's all produced by everything around him, then that also applies to the person who's saying that, i.e., the critic. <laughs> they leave that bit out. So I don't know where I got onto there, but it fascinates me. Has, has this thinking that you've done with Ian McHillcrest and, and, and left and right brain hemispheres, has that helped giving you a bit of an understanding of this problem of polarisation? Yes, polar I think so. You know, it's, it's, think it, that book, think. and I just want to say it, is called The Master and His Emissary. And it's a heavy book, but you can read a little bit at a time because it's very dense. But it's explained things to me that were a mystery to me all my life. It's the most extraordinary book. So far as the polarization at the moment, I do think that's about the anxiety of the state of the world and the fact that people are a bit depressed and they're looking for easy answers and there aren't any. And they're not going to get reason balanced things from the media because that's how the, not how the media makes money. The media, we saw it recently with Fox News. They said, we can't tell these people the truth because otherwise they'll switch to other channels that are telling them the lies that they want. You remember this? Mm. The Dominion um, voting machine case, you know? Yeah. And that's extraordinary. That's absolute insanity, but it's about money. But we can't tell the truth because we'll, we'll lose viewers and we'll lose money. It's madness. It does worry me that Part of the problem now is that your truth can be true for you, my truth can be true for me, mm -hmm. even if they contradict. And we do have this great problem that it's hard for us to have a rational 
facts-based, yeah. evidence-based debate. And I personally, one of, part of my mantra with these conversations is you can't get good public policy out of a bad debate. Uh -huh. You can't have a good debate if you can't agree on some fundamental truths. Yes, I think that's right. So how do I we think this is the trouble with multiculturalism, is you want to have a, a core of things that people agree on, and then all the details can be um, fixed. But if you believe that, um, uh, say, allegiance to a god is effectively, in the real world, more powerful than allegiance to the constitution of a country, then that's a conflict. I don't know how you resolve that. I mean, I would say if you feel that, then don't come to a country that has a completely opposite view, because there are many countries that have your view. Wouldn't you feel more comfortable there? And, uh, and maybe if you destroy the culture of the country that you've come to, everyone loses. Yeah. Not just the people who have enjoyed that culture, but the very people who have come to it looking for something better. You, you can undo it. Yes, you can be too critical of it because you want to change something before you've really had time to absorb what the real feeling and truth about the country is. I do think that's right. And I do think it's fair to say to people, well, if you really don't like so many aspects of this country, wouldn't you be happier finding another country that agrees with your views more? rather than coming to one that agrees less than which you want to change, although it's not what the history of that country has led to. And I suppose you run up against the problem with that I can't get a job there. These are big issues. Let me round it out. You've been very generous with your time. Yeah, but let me say one more thing about immigrants. I see sometimes people forget, and I'm going back centuries now, that immigrants usually immigrated because they weren't doing that well in the country they came from. Yeah. You know, few, yes. But most of them came out of desperation. And I think I really do believe in the thing I was brought up with, which is when, uh, when in Rome, do as the Romans. Thank you. You've been very generous. Two last quick ones. I am. I'm extraordinarily generous. But I'm warm-hearted too, which you haven't mentioned recently. You are absolutely <laughs> warm-hearted. And I want to know, what makes you laugh? You've brought lots of people, a lot of joy and happiness. You really have. I can't pay a much greater compliment to your oh, professional career thank you. than that. Uh, yes, but I know. What makes made, you I've laugh? Made, yeah, I've made some people laugh, which is good. Um, I think the sheer outrageousness of people like Trump, you know, when he's going about a crooked Joe Biden. I mean, <laughs> from Trump, you know, that makes me laugh. But otherwise, ordinary, everyday stupidity, I think, that makes me laugh. And occasionally little moments of when I say God makes a joke, like I was introduced to a chauffeur in Melbourne, nice looking chap, but completely bald, billiard ball, bald. And he offers me his hand and he says, I'm Sean. <laughs> <laughs> Fleeced, perhaps. Did he fleece you? 
He didn't fleece you. No. He didn't. Oh, that's good. <laughs> Very good. Finally, Very good. Though, hope. What gives you hope? Because we need hope. We've talked about hope. And traditionally in our culture, it was Christian yeah. belief, a secure hope, yes. etc. Yes. We don't believe it anymore. Where do we find hope? Maybe we need to backtrack and think again. What do you think? Yes, I think there's something going on of a spiritual nature. And if we can connect with that, everything gets better. Everything around us gets better. But it's very hard to connect with it because I think most of the churches have lost whatever it was that the founder of the church had. Well, maybe the moral of the story there is don't look to the disciples, look to the master. Yes. Look to the master, yeah. not to the people who joined because it was a good oh. dental plan. Well, you've given me the best couple of hours I've had in many, many a year. Oh, lovely. I've enjoyed it immensely. Very good. Thank you so much. I thought I'd never meet a politician I liked. <laughs> <laughs>